Hey there, everybody, and welcome to this first episode of Case Management Toolbox Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about case management and counseling ethics and really looking at the scope of practice and what counselors and case managers need to consider when we are working with clients. So the first thing you may be asking is, why am I including counselors in this? Well, believe it or not, despite what certain national certifying bodies would say, some counselors actually do have to engage in some case management activities because our clients do not meet the threshold for being able to qualify for reimbursable case management activities through a third-party payer. So there are a lot of times, especially if you're dealing with moderately well-functioning individuals, where you're going to have to make referrals and you may have to help them link with certain services, especially during periods, for example, when a moderately well-functioning individual happens to go into crisis. That doesn't qualify them in most cases for reimbursable case management services. So the linkages become incumbent upon the counselor. So off my soapbox, onto the presentation. We're going to explain the scope of practice and code of ethics for case managers. And then I'm going to throw in there a little bit about, you know, what counselors need to do too. And we're going to compare and contrast the code of ethics and scope of practice for case managers to that of rehabilitation and mental health counselors. We're going to start with the scope of practice. Case managers ensure that the treatment team has provided education about the injury, disease, or condition. The case manager is often the single point of contact. So that person is going to want to make sure that the professionals who did the diagnosis and who are going to engage in the treatment are have educated the client about what's going on and what the potential treatments are, what the potential outcomes are, all that whole informed consent stuff. Case managers provide information to the team and the client and family regarding available resources and benefits. I worked with some wonderful case managers when I was in community mental health who were very well versed on all of the services that were available in our community. As a clinician, I had no idea. You know, when I needed assistance finding something for a client, I would often have to call United Way Information and Referral because that wasn't something I worked with every day. Case managers are a wealth of information. And they, again, they'll educate the providers and they'll say, hey, John needs assistance getting his medication. He's being med non-compliant because he can't afford it. Did you know that there are these patient assistant programs? And let me help you figure out how to help John get set up with those. So the case manager will help us help the client and help the client access services. They are really good at facilitating. Case managers do not do assessment and treatment of any sort of mental health issue or physical health issue. What they do do is facilitate linkages and make sure that the treatment team system is functioning at max efficiency. Case managers will identify clinical, psychosocial, financial, operational, and or environmental issues which may need to be addressed by the treatment team to ensure quality care and reimbursement. For example, if a client is coming to your treatment center or they've gone through an assessment and you've determined that, okay, this person has a severe and persistent mental illness and they are going to need assistance um, with, they're, they're going to need counseling assistance and potentially medication assistance with uh, getting with set up with a psychiatrist. 
Well, there's a particular program called the um, Assertive Community um, Case Management Treat Assertive Community Treatment. Um, sorry where the case manager is actually involved in going out and doing home visits, making sure that patients are taking care of their activities of daily living, making sure that patients are taking their medication. And within the process of doing that, the case manager may identify some needs that client X has, and they come back to the treatment team and they said, you know, I went out to John Smith's house today and he's having a lot of difficulty making his electricity payments. And if he doesn't do that, his lights are going to turn off, get turned off and then he may end up homeless and yada, yada. And if he's homeless, then obviously treatment outcomes are not going to be nearly as good. So there are things that a case manager is looking for to make sure that the client, we'll call him John Smith in this case, uh, is able to effectively participate in treatment and show up for the sessions that he or she needs to show up for, etc. Case managers will use assessment complementary tools that identify risks associated with client needs. And that's basically what we just talked about. Case managers are really going to help look at wraparound services to identify what are some risks, what are some barriers that this client may encounter that may prevent him or her from actively participating or successfully completing treatment. As clinicians, we are looking at what does the client need in order to address this mental health or substance abuse issue? As a case manager, they're looking and saying, okay, what does the client need in order to make sure that they can implement the treatment plan that the client created with the counselor? Case management, uh, case managers and their clients will develop a plan of care that matches the patient's needs, preferences, and available resources. Now, this is true for counselors and case managers. In counseling, we call it a treatment plan. In case management, they often call it a plan of care or a service plan. Now, you need to be a little bit careful here if you're working with a case manager within your agency to figure out who has the, quote, primary case plan. And it can, documentation can get a little bit challenging sometimes. So just do be aware of that and make sure that you're documenting in a way that ensures that case management as well as counseling can be reimbursed. Case managers will help. They're not going to do it all, but they're going to help sequence and organize the implementation of services to ensure efficient, effective care delivery. Think about a client who is struggling with a severe and persistent mental illness, who may be having difficulty just doing day-to-day -day life things right now. And all of a sudden you're saying, okay, you need to go see the psychiatrist and you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do the other thing. The client's going to sit there and kind of get bleary-eyed because it's overwhelming to them. The case manager uh, may help them figure out, okay, what do I need to do first? Now, when you're working in a multidisciplinary treatment team where you've got a physician and a um, psychiatrist, you know, maybe a pain management physician, a psychiatrist, and a mental health counselor, all three of those professionals may be saying, you need to do this, that, and the other thing. And the cl client's just going, oh my gosh, I have three professionals telling me I need to do 16 different things. I don't know where to start. The case manager will help sequence those things so the client doesn't feel overwhelmed. Because when they feel overwhelmed, they're at much greater risk for just dropping out of treatment and going, I, I just can't do it.
Case management documentation focuses on acquisition and utilization of resources as they pertain to reducing risk and enhancing treatment delivery. So when we look at writing case notes in case management, we want to talk about why did John Smith access this resource and in what way will it help John Smith complete his treatment successfully. Risks for case managers to consider, things that they want to make sure that don't happen. They want to make sure clients don't terminate early or only participate sporadically. And a lot of times this can be due to the hours that treatment's available, transportation, childcare, yada, yada. Uh, we want to look at ineffective treatment, and I use that term really broadly. For example, if you have someone who is hearing impaired or who has limited literacy, where I worked in community mental health, we did a lot of stuff with worksheets and big books and things like that and we also had a lot of patients who had extremely limited literacy so our go-to way of presenting information was not effective for those clients a case manager would make sure that we were aware that the person had lim limited literacy and help us figure out ways to assist that client and facilitate their treatment Case managers want to be on the lookout for worsening of symptoms due to medication noncompliance, especially case managers that are going out and visiting clients multiple times a week. We think about clinicians, as, as mental health clinicians, we may see a client once a week. A psychiatrist may see a client once a month or once every three months. A case manager may see a client three or four times a week. So they are seeing the client more often and they're more able to identify a signs of an impending relapse, whether it's mental health or, or substance abuse. They want to be on the lookout of worsening of symptoms. Is the client not taking their medication? If so, why? And the case manager would say, okay, let's look at the obstacles that are keeping this person from being med medication compliant. Let's, let me advocate for this person with their care team to help them figure out a strategy that will, will help them take their medication as they're supposed to, whether it's a matter of affording them or they don't like the side effects or I had one client who would regularly, he had the wherewithal to know that he couldn't take his medication and use crack at the same time, so he would plan, quote unquote, for the weekend and he would stop taking his antipsychotics so he could use over the weekend. And while I was glad that he wanted to survive and he was putting that much thought into making sure he could survive, obviously that wasn't the best for his mental health. Case managers want to be on the lookout for additional complications due to difficulties with activities of daily living, like paying bills or going shopping or making their own food. Sometimes clients have difficulty with this. As my grandmother got older, you know, she really wanted to maintain her independence and she started having a lot of physical problems that you know, she could have benefited from a case manager, but some of the complications she was having, she would forget to turn off the stove or, you know, she would have difficulty with doing something, but she was hearing impaired, so it made it harder for her to reach out and connect with people. There were a lot of little things that, when I say little, but things that a counselor wouldn't be assessing that a case manager can look at and say, okay, from a biopsychosocial perspective, 
what is keeping this client from being able to implement their treatment plan with the providers. And case managers, one of their key statistics, if you will, is to prevent readmission. Once somebody goes through treatment, a case manager usually stays on with the person for a while, maybe indefinitely, in order to make sure that the person is continuing with their relapse prevention or continuing care plan so the client doesn't have to be readmitted to that same high level of care that they were admitted to prior. Case managers and counselors identify available community resources and advocate for the resolution of gaps in services and or problems in process implementation. In counseling, we call this a recovery-oriented system of care. Case managers call this a day at work. But what we're looking at is, you know, what are the gaps? My experiences, for example, where, where I came from is... I was in an area that was relatively rural, so one of the challenges or one of the gaps to services was getting people from the outlying cities into our little mecca of suburbia, and there wasn't transportation. There wasn't a bus that ran from the city of Alachua to the city of Gainesville or something. So that was an issue. There were also gaps in... Childcare, for example, over the summer when parents had their children and the parents we worked with couldn't afford to send their kids to camp and stuff, so they needed assistance for something to do with their kids so they could come to day treatment, otherwise they couldn't come. These are the little or big obstacles that we need to address, and we look at and we go, okay, let's scratch our ahead and think what's causing this problem another example when it used to get hot in florida it would get very hot and our attending psychiatrist noticed that during these times of year when it got really really hot we would have a significant increase in clients with psychotic episodes in the crisis stabilization unit well lo and behold antipsychotics are very um, sensitive to people's hydration levels so the people who were homeless who were also on antipsychotics when they would get dehydrated their meds would get out of whack so they would start having psychotic episodes and it became important for reducing the readmission rates of those clients to figure out how can we help them stay hydrated and how can we help them stay safe even when the temperature is in the 90s or the hundreds Case managers and counselors ensure that all elements of the transition plan are communicated to all stakeholders as appropriate. I use the term stakeholders because it's shorter than saying to the client, to the family, to the other treating clinicians, to the insurance company. You know, anybody who has a stake in what's going on with this client, we need to make sure that they get the memo about what the transition plan looks like, whether the person's transitioning out of services completely or, for example, transitioning from residential down to outpatient with case management services. Case managers and counselors will track avoidable delays and identify and communicate opportunities for improvement to senior management, to the community. A lot of times there are community boards that are designed to help create a recovery-oriented system of care. So they rely on case managers and counselors saying, this is where these avoidable delays are coming in. We have people coming in for assessments and they're in crisis, but we don't have an individual counselor available for nine weeks. We're 
we've got a huge gap here because by the end of nine weeks, the person's resolved the situation or found another therapist. We need to figure out how to get them into services. Residential's the same way. We have people who go through detox. They get clean, you know, they get detoxified, but then there's not a bed in residential for two or three months, and they're sent back into that same place where they were drinking, drugging, doing whatever, and we expect them to stay clean and sober? No, it's really not going to happen. So what can we do to facilitate that so we don't have them readmitting to detox, and so we can facilitate their admission to residential? Case managers and counselors will proactively prevent denials based on medical necessity by documenting relevant information and educating key stakeholders. Everybody on the treatment team needs to understand why John Smith is doing what John Smith is doing. If we're saying John Smith needs to start looking for a job, well, that's great. But how does that pertain to preventing readmission and improving his or her mental health and or physical health in order to prevent readmission. Everything comes back to how does it pertain to recovery from John Smith's presenting issue and preventing readmission. We need to make sure we tie it back and tie it up in a nice little bow for the auditors when they read it. Case managers need to make sure that they educate if they're having clients do something, um, educate the treatment team about how it's going to help John Smith implement his treatment plan. So that gives you an idea kind of about the scope of practice. Case managers are so integral. And even if you're in a facility where case management, there's, there's no reimbursability for case management services, the amount of effect, the effectiveness of counseling can greatly be enhanced by case management and you can free up your clinicians so instead of having John Smith come back every three or four months because he's relapsing if he comes through once and then he has a case manager that can help him navigate his continuing care plan then that clinician is freed up if you will to see a new patient what are some ethical principles that case managers need to consider. The same darn ones that counselors consider and hopefully physicians and everybody else. Beneficence. We want to act in the best interest of the client. Now, this is not always reactive. This is also proactive. This can include advocacy. This can include working on those recovery-oriented system of care committees. This can include... Um, Educating the community in order to destigmatize severe and persistent mental illness or addiction or pain syndromes. Beneficence means acting in the best interest of the client so they are in an environment that is helpful and healthy and nurturing and supportive. Non-malfeasance is sort of the baseline ethical principle, if you will. Above all, do no harm. And a lot of what we focus on in ethics classes is doing no harm. And I really want to get away from that and focus more on what can we do that's in the best interest of the client instead of doing no harm. If we're acting in the best interest, then we're obviously doing no harm. Fidelity. We need to be faithful to our word. We need to be faithful to our word to the clients as well as to the other stakeholders. Justice. 
we want to ensure that clients receive equal and fair treatment. A client who is on Medicaid, for example, needs to get the same treatment that a client who is private pay gets and a client who has private insurance gets. And autonomy. We want to empower clients for success. We don't want to do things for them that they can do for themselves. We want to empower them. So if they can connect with a referral source, by all means, let's empower them to do that instead of doing it for them. We want to make sure that they are learning how to solve their problems, that they are learning how to connect with resources to the best of their ability. You're going to have some clients, for example, who have... Severe and persistent mental illness. You know, I worked with one man who literally was a rocket scientist. Um, he, he was an astrophysicist and wonderful, brilliant guy when he was lucid. But he had a schizophrenic break when he, right after he had graduated with his doctorate. And during the periods when he's not lucid, when his medication's not quite where it needs to be, he would need a lot more assistance, asking him to do the things that the average person does, quote-unquote, was not realistic. So we need to empower clients for success based on their abilities at that point in time. And clients' abilities, whether you're dealing with somebody who's having a kidney transplant versus somebody in recovery from substance abuse versus somebody who is who has schizophrenia you know on any given day they may or may not be able to handle certain things so we want to place the public interest above our own at all times and this principle applies to a lot of those ethical issues beneficence non-malfeasance and justice particularly for example False billing leads to higher insurance rates and loss of trust in the profession. We want to make sure that we're doing what we say we're doing. We're not padding our hours. We're not massaging or calling something, something that's billable when we were actually providing a different service. We want to make sure that we are providing accurate billing logs. We're not placing the public interest above our own if we continue to work while we're burned out or psychologically unavailable. This can harm clients and negatively impact the perception of the profession. If we are providing services and we're barely getting by with our own stuff, it's going to come through. And clients are going to feel like case management, you know, may not be helpful or they may be feeling like they have to do more to help their case manager than their case manager is doing to help them. Whatever the case, it's really important that we check ourselves because it's not in the public interest for us to be working with them if we are burned out. It's incumbent upon us to report and address a known, known misconduct. If you know somebody's falsifying their logs, if you know somebody is... An impaired professional if you know somebody is doing something that is unethical um, and or against the rules it's important to re report that misconduct to the appropriate board or supervisor we need to make referrals when other providers are more appropriate due to case content or case load in counseling for example if i'm working with somebody who's got trauma issues and i think emdr would be beneficial for them i'm going to make that referral i'm not going to say well let's let's keep with cognitive behavioral because that's what i do and i want to make sure i get reimbursed no what's 
what we need to do is what's in the best interest of the client. So it's important for me to present it to the client as an option and so he or she can achieve their maximal recovery level. For case managers, you know, case managers do a lot of things, and there's lots of different kinds of case management. Some case managers may work in an agency where there are counselors and this and that, but maybe they work at a, an agency where there are counselors, but the client they're working with is struggling with grief issues that would be better handled by um, their, their religious leader, for example. Okay, well, that might be a more appropriate referral. Yes, a counselor could bill for it, but it's not about what the counselor can bill for. It's about what's in the best interest of the client. And we need to act as a client advocate and identify options and provide choices to clients. You don't want to just say, okay, you need to look into EMDR or you need to go see this physician or, or whatever and give them one name. We want to provide an education about why we're making that referral so the client can figure out whether they even want to pursue the referral and it's important to provide options i remember one time i went to the dentist and before i knew it she was making referrals and setting up appointments for me for stuff that i had no intention on going to um and there was no choice there was no do you want a referral to this here are you know, three or four providers that you can look into. It's really important that we make sure that we give clients, especially high-functioning clients, an opportunity to make informed choices. We want to respect the rights and inherent dignity of all clients. This applies to every ethical moray, beneficence, non-malfeasance, justice, and autonomy. Do not make decisions for clients that they can make for themselves. If they want to eat spaghetti for lunch today, then let them eat spaghetti for lunch unless it's, you know, for some reason going to make them, like, deathly physically ill. If they want to go see the doctor for the cold that they've got right now, let them go see the doctor. If they don't want to go see the doctor for the cold they've got right now, you can tell them your opinion. You can educate them about how the doctor might help, but it's up to them to make the decision unless they have been proclaimed um, legally incompetent, in which case they have a proxy who is a, a healthcare proxy who's able to make the decision for them. But we do want to empower clients to make their own decisions. We want to advocate for client empowerment and autonomy, and this is true for case managers and clients. We want to make sure that clients are living their optimal life and as empowered as possible to do it for themselves. We don't want to create dependencies. We want to respect the cultural values and personal preferences of clients. Some clients aren't, don't believe in the use of medication. Some clients don't believe in Western approaches to medication. Some clients want to use natural methods. Some clients really want medication. Uh, we want to respect the values and preferences. Some clients don't believe in, for example, certain medical procedures. And it's important to respect that and allow them to make their decisions based on what's important to them. And we do need to inform clients about confidentiality restrictions. I hope this is not new news to you. In order to respect their rights, we need to tell them ahead of time, 
I can keep your confidence in all of these situations except. And if any of these happen, then, you know, we're going to have to make a, a choice. I remember working in community mental health as a clinician, not as a case manager, and I found out about domestic violence. And this happened on multiple occasions. Or child abuse. And it was, I could have let the client leave and then called the hotline. It was more important to me to empower the client at that point, and it was when it was safe, you know, obviously, to make the call themselves. I'm like, okay, you know, this is one of those things that I've got to report, so we can do it one of two ways. You know, I can make the call and be done with it, or you can make the call while you're here in my office, and we can proceed from there. And a lot of times, clients felt better about doing it themselves instead of feeling like somebody was telling on them. Obviously, you have to make a, a judgment at that point with consultation, usually, before you necessarily tell the client that you're going to make a report. If making a report, if telling the client ahead of time is going to endanger a child, for example, then you need to be, you know, very careful about that. So there are considerations, but take home from this is you want to inform clients about confidentiality restrictions and be true to your word. Maintain objectivity with your clients. You need to be able to clearly articulate your reasoning behind re recommendations. If you get subjective with clients, you may want to do this and, oh my gosh, I can so see this person enjoying this, that, and the other activity and wanting to make recommendations. You need to step back and maintain ob objectivity and say, is this referral, is this process that I want to instigate or that I'm maintaining helping the person move toward the successful resolution of their treatment plan? If not, then we need to really look at, you know, why are you doing that? Are you trying to, you know, sometimes we've got transference issues, which we're going to get down to in a minute. Avoid making referrals to preferred vendors, and that's what I, one of the things I just talked about. You don't want to have your buddy down the street that's a physical therapist or a chiropractor or an acupuncturist or a massage therapist or whatever it is, and always make referrals to that person. That person can be on your list of referrals, but it's important to provide the client with choice so they can go online, they can look at... The different reviews on Yelp or, you know, the doctor websites or whatever. We want to respect their cultural values and perspectives, even if we don't agree, if we're from a different, if we have a different perspective on things. Well, that's our perspective, not theirs. So we need to maintain objectivity and say, what is in the best interest of this client at this point in time? We don't want to impose our own values or perspectives. We need to make sure that we are very well aware of what's our stuff and what's theirs. We need to address any transference or counter-transference issues, and this is big with objectivity. You may work with clients sometimes that remind you of somebody or they're just, they seem so helpless, so you want to nurture and caretake them and that's not objective you need to step back and be objective and treat them just like you're treating every other case on your caseload we need to regularly self-evaluate our performance in order to make sure we're maintaining objectivity you know you don't want to just go well i'll know when i'm not being objective regularly kind of check in with yourself and make sure 
you're aware one of the little hints that you're not maintaining objectivity is if you're spending more time thinking about a particular case if you're taking that case home mentally with you and having difficulty letting it go that's not the only clue but that is a big clue that you may not be maintaining objectivity and you want to avoid any dual relationships with clients you don't want to be providing case management to somebody who is working in your front office you don't want to be providing case management to your neighbor's son um, unless it's completely unavoidable there are a lot of potential dual relationships out there that you need to be aware of dual relationships can exist between the case manager or the counselor and the client you know if you're working with a client who was also a friend of yours from high school that's a dual relationship or if you're working with a client who used to be a co-worker of yours that's a dual relationship you can have dual relationships with the insurance companies as well you need to make sure that you're very clear about the who is your client in a particular situation um, if you have insurance if you have state contracts there are a lot of rules that you have to follow and you want to make sure that you're not get, giving favor if you will to one payor over another you can have a dual relationship with the employer of the client maybe the client's employer referred them to you because they were struggling in uh, at work or they were struggling for some reason and who is your primary client then is it the employer or the client and the answer is the client we want to make sure that we don't have a dual relationship where we're trying to um, do everything the employer wants us to do as well as trying to do everything in the best in the best interest of the client then we get stuck sometimes on okay you know we've got a decision to make I'm not sure whose best interest I need to pay attention to it's always the clients we can also have dual relationships with our employers when we're working with the client we can be in that sticky wicket where we know something would be in the best interest of the client but it's really not something our agency wants us to do for example referring out for services a lot of times our agencies want us to keep it in-house whenever possible and sometimes you're going to be looking at a client going I think there's a better service out there in making sure that you're clear about your boundaries with respect to the client and doing what's in the best interest of the client we need to act with integrity and fidelity fidelity with clients and stakeholders at all times we need to recognize and demonstrate joint accountability again we are not doing things for the client we are not fixing the client we are assisting the client in implementing their treatment plan and achieving recovery so the client has to have some level of accountability the and everybody on the treatment team and the organizations that employ everybody on the treatment team need to have certain levels of accountability everybody on a treatment team needs to contribute to decision making we're not acting with integrity and fidelity if we're not speaking for the client when you've got a treatment team meeting somebody needs to be the voice of the client now hopefully everybody is but you need to make sure that you speak your observations don't promise things that you can't deliver don't bend the rules 
do what you say when you say you will do it comply with directives from ethics committees don't accept or provide kickbacks or gifts for referrals or give them and this is really really important and a lot of people have gotten in trouble in the recent years for doing this a gift or a kickback is considered something that wouldn't be a normal course of your work and I have an entire class on on that but what you want to make sure is that you're not getting a tit-for-tat as they say if you refer to dr. Smith uh, and then you expect Dr. Smith to refer back to you. You don't want to refer to Dr. Smith and expect to get something in return. And you also don't want to have it set up so Dr. Smith expects you to refer to him all the time. It's important that, again, we're considering who is the best referral for this particular client and provide the client with options because I haven't ever come across a situation where there was only one best referral. Ensure clients are provided with a warm referral for all necessary services. We want to make sure if we've made a referral, if we're helping the client link, that when necessary, we've already gotten the release of information. We have already contacted that provider before the client goes and submitted any paperwork they need from the client's chart in order to facilitate service delivery. Ensure clients are fully informed about the costs, benefits, and risks of all services. Obviously, we want to make sure that they're providing full informed consent about our services, but a case manager goes further and looks at all the services that the treatment team is providing, and the case manager wants to make sure that the client understands the costs, benefits, and risks of everything that's going on. It can get overwhelming. I know for my grandmother, for example, she had no idea how to get services or whatever. She was just sort of a passive recipient at the end, and people were doing whatever for her, and they were missing a lot of whatever's for her, and so her pain went uncontrolled. She wasn't aware of how to advocate for herself. She wasn't aware of you know some of the benefits and or drawbacks of some of the things that were happening it's really important for clients who are experiencing cognitive decline who are have some sort of cognitive impairment or who are just in a world that is new to them like the neonatal intensive care unit or if they're getting a transplant or if they've got cancer these medical teams are going to be using a lot of terms and talking about procedures that the client may have no idea what they're talking about. They're just going, okay, you're, you're the expert, you know best, uh-huh, whatever. It's important that we educate them. As clinicians and case managers, we need to advertise our services accurately, what we can and cannot do. Complete documentation in an accurate and timely manner and ensure that all clients are providing informed consent. We need to maintain competency to provide the highest level of care, which means taking care of our own health and mental health. We are a danger to the public if we're going out there and we're burnt out or we don't have our own stuff under control because that will likely directly impact the quality of our work. We need to seek additional training if we're working with a new population. For example, if I started working with clients who had terminal cancer you know yes I've had 
family members with terminal cancer. Yes, I'm aware of terminal cancer. Yes, I'm aware of grief issues, but I haven't worked specifically with that population. So it's important to get additional training if that's going to be my new population. Regularly seek out continuing education, collaboration, and consultation to enhance your ability to provide effective services with your population. Continuing education doesn't necessarily just mean what your state requires you to get every year. It can mean finding a podcast or a book that might help you work with your population better or work with a specific client more effectively. Collaboration and consultation may mean going on LinkedIn or going to a meetup group locally and saying, okay, I've got this client, you know, no names, that is presenting with this issue. Does anybody have any book recommendations or any recommendations or can I consult with anyone in order to make sure the client is getting the most effective care? We need to maintain awarenesses of all changes in regulations, including the Americans with Disabilities Act, HIPAA, and anything with reimbursement, including capitation and what services are reimbursable, because that changes, sometimes year to year. And we need to maintain all case notes as required by regulations. For example, HIPAA requires that you keep your case notes and any identifying client information, patient health information very secure. We also are required as clinicians, we're required to keep the case notes for seven years. It's important to maintain your case notes in compliance with the law. We need to honor the integrity of the certification or license because we represent the entire profession in our interactions with stakeholders in the public. Maybe they haven't interacted with a case manager before and you're the first. Well, you know what they say about first impressions. So if you make a bad first impression, then people may think, oh, I don't think I need case managers on our team. It's important that you reflect and put forth the image. You're the representative of the entire profession in every interaction. And practice within your bounds of competence, even if that is more narrow than your legal scope of practice. In counseling, for example, there is not a special certificate required or special training required to work with children, which I think is a travesty, because they are not little adults. There's a whole different approach to working with children. There's all different knowledge that you need. So for me, I don't have that training and knowledge to work with young children. That's not something that I am going to practice without significant supervision and continuing education. The same thing may be true for case managers. A case manager who's always worked at a mental health facility may be really well versed on that. But if they go over to a hospital and start working in a transplant unit, that is a whole different ball game. So they're going to have to get more knowledge in order to be competent to work with that population. We need to obey all laws and regulations, including the ADA, HIPAA, high tech reimbursement laws and regulations, scope of practice regulations, mandatory reporting laws, and what I'm going to call just good citizen laws. Most of our boards, whether you're a clinician or a case manager, most of our boards have laws that say if you get convicted of a felony, you could lose your license. If you get convicted of certain misdemeanors, you could lose your license. If you are caught 
under the influence or if you're an impaired practitioner, then there are procedures that have to be followed. It is important to remember that if you break the law, just keep it simple. You want to follow the law. If you break the law, you may have to report it to your board. And again, if you break the law, you're serving as a representative of your profession, which doesn't go well. So we want to make sure that we are upholding, we're holding ourselves to higher standards, if you will. We want to provide input to review and revise the code. For example, adding a section for ethical considerations when providing virtual services. That's something that happened over the past 10 years or so in a lot of the counseling ethical codes. And case management is becoming more and more virtual. It's going to be important, if it's not already addressed in your code, for those codes to be in there. Another example would be advocating for the ability of people with substantial recovery from substance abuse uh, who also have a felony on their record to be able to provide services after a given period of time. Sometimes when people are in recovery, it's helpful to be working with a case manager who also is in recovery. And a lot of people who are in recovery, not all of them by any means, but a lot of people who are in recovery have felony convictions on their records. I worked with some of the best clinicians that I worked with uh, who had felonies on their record and they had to jump through certain hoops. So it may be important in with certain populations to advocate for certain changes to your ethical codes. As case managers and, you know, counselors, we need to believe that case management is a means for improving the health, wellness, and autonomy of the individual through advocacy, communication with the patient, family, and stakeholders, education of the patient, family, stakeholders, and community, identification of service resources, and facilitating remediation of gaps in services, like that recovery-oriented system of care I keep talking about, and through service facilitation. Now, counselors are going to do most everything except the last one, which is service facilitation, and that is pretty much exclusively a case manager function. And again, it is so vital so much of the time. We want to recognize the dignity and worth of all people and strive to help them be the best version of themselves that they can be as they define it. You know, I may see John Smith down there, and I can see him, you know, going to college and getting an MBA and doing this, that, and the other, that may not be how John Smith defines his best version of himself. So we need to know what the client's goals are, and we need to help them move towards those goals. We want to consider their socioeconomic status, their health conditions, their mental health conditions, their culture, religion, race, sexual orientation, sexual and relationship preferences, such as polyamory, and their appearance. We want to take all those things and, and go, you know what? I don't care. You are an individual, and you are lovable, and you are worthy of the highest quality of life that you can possibly achieve, regardless of any of those other facts. You know, it's you are a person, and you have inherent dignity. We want to commit to quality outcomes through the appropriate use of resources and empowerment of the individual by using evidence-based practices. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's been a lot of research out there that identifies things that are necessary to help people be successful. Start looking at those. 
Don't over-refer or change diagnostic codes to enhance billable hours. You don't want to, if you're working with John Smith and, you know, he was in residential and he's struggling a little bit right now, you don't want to necessarily refer him back to residential. You know, that's over-referring. That's a higher level of services than he needs. Yes, the agency will get paid more for that level of services, but it's more than he needs. You don't want to change diagnostic codes because you've run out of the money that the insurance company will give you for this mental health code, so you're switching over to a different code. No, you don't want to do that. You do want to use scaffolding to assist clients in achieving outcomes. And remember, scaffolding is helping them to the point where they can do it on their own. Think about, you know, if you're working with a kid and helping him learn to tie his shoes. At first, you may have to help him with every single step. And then he may may be able to get his shoe on and cross the laces and tie them the first way. And then maybe he gets to the point where he can tie them the first way and make the loop, the bunny ear, if you will. You want to let the person do as much as they can till they get to a stuck point and then help them through that stuck point and help them learn so they can eliminate that stuck point at a certain point in time. And you want to embrace the premise that when individuals reach the optimum level of functioning, the client, stakeholders, and the community all benefit. When people are healthy, everybody wins. It benefits the client financially. It benefits the employer financially if their workforce is healthy. It benefits the community financially if employers are able to keep people employed and they don't have people on as many social services. It benefits the person occupationally because they'll be able to maintain a job and pay their bills and do all that kind of stuff. It benefits the employer because they'll be able to keep that employee. It benefits people interpersonally because when people are happier, they're engaging more with one another. They're supporting one another more, and they tend to have fewer relapses. They also tend to go out and do more things, which benefits the community because the person is not depressed and walled up in their house. And it can benefit the community and everybody legally. You know, it helps the client stay out of jail if that was an issue but it can also help um, reduce crime in in neighborhoods when people are happier and healthier there tends to be lower crime rates it tends to have a ripple effect on the entire community when the client is healthy when the client is happy so both counselors and case managers are bound by the principles of beneficence non-malfeasance autonomy justice and fidelity Whereas counselors focus on the diagnosis and treatment of mental health issues, case managers assess client needs and facilitate access to services and resources necessary to achieve the highest quality of life as defined by the client.